Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. We are here talking about step one, as you saw. We're going to continue talking about step one. Someone asked, well, don't, isn't there a step two? There is. There's more steps and things. But we're going to keep talking about step one today. I want to talk to you about step one to step one, if that makes any sense. But before that, I just want to say a few things about what is going on around our church. We have a great church and a great school. And I want to congratulate the Parkway Christian School girls volleyball team because they are district champions. And I think they should be congratulated. So they'll be playing uh, more next week uh, to continue on, but it's great to have district champions. The school's uh, doing so well. And I also just want to say thank you to everyone who came out the last two Saturdays of October and helped around uh, the grounds of the church. You did a fabulous job. There was so much done in just a few hours each Saturday. It was noticeable, and I wanted to let you uh, know that I noticed it, and others have noticed it, so thank you very much. Thank you for all that you do uh, for your church. You did a great, great job. And I also just want to say we're, we're moving into the Christmas season. I know it's hard to believe. You heard uh, Brittany up here this morning she was talking about a caroling uh, event that we're going to have, we're looking forward to. But I want to just share some things that we have that you can use to invite others to uh, our church, to invite them to some of the services. We have some these door hangers, and they are available today as you leave. Pick a few up. They are actually all ready to hang on a door. Don't take them if you're just going to put them on your counter or stick them in your briefcase. But if you are willing to go around to some of your neighbors, it doesn't have to be a hundred. You could just take a few, hang them on the door. They talk a little bit about our services. They talk about what our Christmas theme is going to be. And our Christmas theme has been titled Xmas. Now you're all shuddering in your seats, I know. But please read underneath it. It says, it's not what you think. And I'm going to leave it at that. And, and I, I want to invite you to all of our Christmas services. They begin on uh, November 26th. We have some uh, magnets, too. We, don't, we, we only made about 500 of these. If you want to put them on your uh, refrigerator, hang them up where they'll remind you, you can take some of these too. So great things are going on. We, uh, I am uh, very, very thrilled with all that's happening at uh, Bethesda Christian Church. I love it. Uh, I, I love all of you that are such a part of this and you're behind us and you're, you're here. And I love that we're all together. And it's what we've been talking about for really the month of October and uh, led into it also last week to keep the theme going. And I just want to take a couple of minutes to 
review it so that we can continue on the same page, pull it together. For the past month, we talked about eliminating walls, barriers, things that are in front of us so that we could have a vision of unity, a vision of a united church, a church of one. Psalm 24 was our backdrop for the month, and it speaks of a generation that seeks God's face, and I want this church really the whole church of Jesus Christ, the universal church, to be that generation that seeks God's face, that asks him for his blessing together, young, old, uh, embodying that one generation of the church. And that's reminiscent of a scripture that I used over a year ago, back in June 2016, and I think it's just worth reminding us all, and that scripture is from Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 5, where it talks about King Uzziah, and it says, as long as King Uzziah sought the Lord, God gave him success. It wasn't his success. It wasn't because of him as a person. It was because of the Lord, his openness to seek God and to ask God and uh, really look to what God would have for him. Then God brings the success. Let's be you that. Let's be that united. Let's be that together. That generation that is doing that, seeking God not for what our hearts desire, but for what He desires. And then we'll be that church that's united to be the answer of the prayer of Jesus, which is what we talked about last week. The prayer of Jesus from John chapter 17. Jesus in that prayer said to his father, and remember, this was the night before he was going to be crucified. And I I said, think about that. Think about what would you be praying? What would you pray if you knew you're going to not just die, but you're going to be tortured before your death. And Jesus was praying about his followers, and he was praying about us, those who would believe in him. He said, Father, I pray also for them who will believe in me. And if you're at that place where you believe in Jesus, you are one that Jesus himself prayed for. He prayed, Father, I'm praying for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, that they'd be together, united. How much so? Father, just as you and I are one. And we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are inexplicably combined. We can't understand it. We can't comprehend the connection that God the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, that the Trinity has. But that's what Jesus was praying, that we, this church, his church, would be that tight, that close. That was his prayer. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought together, Jesus' words, complete unity, that they might be brought together in complete unity. And he followed up with a word, then, then, which is a forward-looking word. It's a future word. Then, then something could happen, Jesus said. Praying to his Father, he said, if they would come to this complete unity, my church, my people, if they come to this complete unity, then something can happen. And what is it? Jesus said, then the world will know 
what will the world know? They will know, Father, that you sent me to them and that you have loved them, loved them so much that he sent his only son. How is the world to comprehend this? But that they see a united people of God. This was the heart of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prayed for this. And and he put that in there. Then the world will know that that should be important to us. These are the words of Jesus Christ, our God, the Son, who came and gave his life for us. Father loves us so much he sent Jesus. This is, this is an extraordinary prayer of Jesus. This it presents his vision. Jesus had a vision for his church to be knit together so that his kingdom could advance. He had this vision for the world to see something because he, he said, then something more can happen. My kingdom can advance. And I put that out to you that that is step one. Step one, before the, the church can advance, Jesus prayed that we would be knit, we would be united. It was a very ambitious prayer of Jesus. Why would that be ambitious? Think about church history. A- ask yourself, have you been in the same church all your life, and what's the reason you're not at the same church? You know, churches, unfortunately, are not known so much for their unity and their togetherness as much as they're known for their division and their disunity and their schisms. And that's truly unfortunate. We can be a part to to change that reputation and be people that are united. You know, there's the old joke. Have you ever heard the old joke about the guy on the deserted island? I know it's an old joke, and many of you probably have heard it before. You know, the man has been deserted, or, or he's been stranded on this deserted island for years, maybe a decade or two. And then finally, finally, he sees a, a ship approaching. He's thrilled. He's going to be rescued. And his rescuers come on the island, and they ask him some questions about, hey, how did you survive, and what did you do? And, and then they spot some buildings, and they say, hey, tell us about those buildings, Sir? And he says, oh, well, you see that one right there? Well, that's my house. I took time to build that up, make myself shelter. That's my house. And then you see that one a little further down? That's my church. I built the place to go to worship my church. And the rescuers, puzzled, scratched their head, and they said, well, what's that third building over there? And he gets kind of, he's got disdain now. He's like, oh, pfft. Well, that was my church before the split. <laughs> That's the reputation, unfortunately, of, of churches, some churches. But Jesus prayed totally against that. And... That's why I say he was aspiring for something ambitious, something remarkable. It was an ambitious prayer because we're people. And Jesus knew people. He came down on the earth as a person, and he knew people struggle to get along. It's hard to agree on everything, and if you don't agree, it's hard to just get in line with those who have the position of uh, making decisions. 
So I want to explore that a little bit this morning, explore uh, beyond just the prayer of Jesus, but how we might make application, how we might make application to be people that express the answer to the prayer of Jesus. How does Jesus' vision of unity express itself? If step one to Jesus' vision was that, the, uh, that we would be a church united so that the world would see that the Father loved us and sent him, if that were step one, then I, I just back up a little bit and I ask, well, what's primary then? What is first to making that happen? And, and that's why I say it's, it's step one to step one. What is first to be united? What do we do as a people? What do we do as a church to avoid the division, even division like the one man on the island? Well, there's many places we could go to in Scripture. The Bible is full of exhortations and encouragements for us to be together. But I want to go to one place that's very succinct. And it's uh, the book of Romans. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. We've actually explored some of this section of Romans that I want to use this morning. And I just want to remind you a little bit about Paul's uh, direction here in this letter. This is the letter to the Romans. Many theologians, they hold it up as the crowning achievement of Paul's efforts, of his uh, work, his most profound writing, and it's the most comprehensive and systematic explanation of the gospel. It has a theology and doctrine. Early on in the first chapter of the book of Romans, uh, Paul gives his purpose. He lays out his purpose. It's a thesis statement or a purpose. It's right there early in the, the first chapter of the book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is something he's going to write about. Why is he ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last. So faith goes the whole distance, in other words. And then he puts, the righteous will live by faith. Faith in this thing he calls the gospel. He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the righteousness of God for salvation. So he puts it out there, and then he writes 10 more chapters on theology and doctrine. That's the first 11 chapters of uh, the book of Romans. Then he shifts gears. Then Paul shifts in he shifts from theology into ethics, practical application. And I love that because he doesn't just leave us hanging with, uh, with what you might call textbook writing, that it's just, uh, you know, sort of theory without application. He gives us the doctrine. He tells us what's, you know, right and wrong. He, he lays it all out there, but then he gives this great, great application. I call it uh, his Sermon on the Mount. It's akin to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because it's one after another, things that we can apply in our life. It begins in Romans chapter 12. And when you know it, when you know it, if you go read Romans chapter 12, how does Paul begin Romans chapter 12? He begins with unity. He writes, 
about this body that we have. He says, present your body a living sacrifice. And then he moves on very quickly. That's just the first couple of verses. Present your body a living sacrifice. This is what is holy and acceptable to God. And then he says, now this body, this is an example. He uses our body as an example, as an illustration. Just as your body has many parts. You know, we have fingers and toes and arms and legs and eyeballs and all of that. And they all have different functions. He said, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body. And we all belong to each other. In other words, the legs can't walk off in that direction and the arms go off in that direction. No, we've got to be one, united. He makes the point, and it's not the only place in Scripture that Paul uses this idea of body as uh, an example for us. Also in his letter to the Corinthians, he goes at great length to explain it. But he said, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That's verse 5 of Romans chapter 12. And then he begins to unroll practical advice. He goes from theology and doctrine to say, hey, we're all one. Now, now, now he's going to unfold. He's going to begin to unpack. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, after this example of the body, he begins. Romans 12, verse 9 and 10. This is what I want to present to you today from Scripture. Paul writes this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Right there is a whole package of practical advice. And as I said, it continues. And I encourage you to read uh, from Romans 12 to the close of the book. Uh, to, to chapter 16, where he says goodbye. Verse 9 here begins with a simple sentence, four words. And it's the foundation. It is the foundation of being united. Remember, it, this follows an example that Paul just gave about the body being many parts, and we all have to be one. And now he, he begins to give us application in his very first line is love must be sincere. What does that mean? Sincere love. No pretenses, no guile, no facades, nothing fake. Now, hasn't this year been the year of fake? I mean, we have fake in front of us all the time. And it's the fake news you can't believe anything you read anymore. There's sham articles, even photos get all doctored up. Videos get doctored up. You can't believe what you read, what you see, what you hear. And things are manipulated. They're counterfeited. And then there's fake people. How, how many people have been in the news lately? People that have been hailed as upstanding for years. And outside of my circle, I, th these are pop culture people, some of them. But now, it seems one after another, accused of abusing women, accused of abusing boys, and not just accused of it, but admitting it. 
Well, have they been living all this time? They've been living fake lives. Insincere. Not genuine. And I think that the world craves sincerity. And genuine, honest, true love. Sincere love is the uh, antithesis. It is the complete opposite of the world's so-called love. And the one who modeled it the best, the one who modeled it for us that we should hold up as the highest example is Jesus. Jesus preached love. He said things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Made it even a little harder. Love your enemies. Love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you. Now, Jesus just didn't talk about it. He just, he, he just wasn't the teacher saying, hey, do this. You do this love, and I won't. No, he totally lived it out, too. He was the best example. He showed his love in so, so many ways. He received the least of society. He welcomed sinners. He welcomed the downtrodden. He gave opportunity for repentance when others would have condemned. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave uh, his disciples a great example of love the evening before he was going to be crucified when he took off his garment, wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Yeah, think about that for a moment. John chapter 13 it, it talks about it. It gives us this narrative. He loved his own. It says, and he loved them till the end. If I was facing my death by execution, would I be taking the time to wash the dirty feet of 12 guys who they'd been fighting about who was the greatest among them? I don't think so. I'll be honest. I don't think I'd be thinking about that. Washing their feet. This is, this is the example that Jesus gave. He was totally sincere. His love. And how far would that love go? When Jesus was arrested, Peter, one of his closest, pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the people coming there in the crowd to arrest him. How did Jesus respond to that? Jesus said, put away your sword. Peter put it away. And he said this, don't you think I could call on my father and he wouldn't dispatch to me 12 legions of angels? When Jesus was questioned by Pontius Pilate, Pilate asked him, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? Again, I put myself in that situation. And you know what I'm saying? What do I got to do so I don't get crucified? You know, you just tell me. How did Jesus respond? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from heaven. He asked his followers, or, or he could have, he could have asked his followers to brandish their swords, couldn't he? He could have said to Pilate, what, what do I need to do for you to set me free? And if he had done that, if he had said, hey, brandish your swords, guys. Let's take them out. If he had said, Pilate, you know, set me free. 
would that have shown how sincere he was? You know, only going so far, talking about it. He told his disciples about how he must die and all this. But if he had only gone so far, would have shown him as not being genuine. Would have shown him as not being totally sincere. Caving in when things got really, really hard. But he didn't, did he? No, Jesus was the ultimate model of sincere love, and he did what he said he was going to do. Death was overcome by what Jesus did. Sin was strong, we heard, sung the song. Sin was strong, but Jesus was stronger because his love was absolutely, completely sincere. And the sincere love of Jesus is the best example of Paul's exhortation to us Love must be sincere. But you might be saying, you might be saying, well, Paul, Paul was writing to the church. He was writing to the church. Love must be sincere. That's directed just in-house. That's not about dealing with someone outside the church, right? No. No, there are certain, certain, uh, certain instances where you know, we operate differently inside the church than we do in the world. And, and the apostle wrote about that. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 5. If you're dealing with somebody who's sinning in the church, he said, put them out. He said, deal with the sin. You've got to deal with someone who is habitually in sin in the church, right? Now, that doesn't mean if you sin, we put you out of the church. No, there's repentance. Paul was dealing with a guy that was uh, completely lost in sin, living uh, with his father's wife, and really not repenting of it. So he said, yeah, in in the church, we have to judge sin. We have to deal with it. But he said, outside the church, that's up to God. All right, so you can't go outside the church and say to somebody, well, uh, you're living in sin. When they don't understand it, they have not been uh, schooled in it at all. They they really don't understand anything about uh, what the Bible has to say about things. So what did Paul say? He said, you got to leave that in God's hands until we win people over, until they come to Christ and they're converted and their lives begin to change and they work and they grow and they advance. That's God's. God will judge the world. That's what he wrote. So there are these times where in the church, out the church, but love, love is not something we just hoard in the church. Love isn't something that we just show to each other and not outside the church. The point of love, the point of love Jesus prayed was to attract others to the kingdom, to him. Our love is to extend into the world. And the world is going to test us, isn't it? It's going to test just how far we're going to go. Jesus went all the way. He's the the ultimate example. Sometimes we're going to fall short. Some, you know, people will bother us, and we may not be uh, inclined to share the gospel with certain people from time to time because they annoy us, because they get under our skin, because they're terrible and we don't want to talk to them. And that happens, and I've been guilty of it. And I need to get better at it. I need to get better at it. I think we all need to get better at it looking at somebody as a soul as opposed to just an annoying person who doesn't need the gospel because, well, it's just frustrating for us to to love them. So hopefully we repent and we learn and we grow and we ask God to help us to do better the next time an opportunity is in front of us because it's going to come. It will come. 
And I believe Paul knew it, and that's why he wrote it. Love must be sincere. He followed it with hate what's evil, cling to what is good. That's an interesting line to follow love, hate. Isn't it? Love must be sincere. The next word's hate. Hate what is evil. So love, an expression of sincere love, it allows for hate. It almost seems paradoxical. It seems like an oxymoron. How could he even write that? Love must be sincere hate. Well, he says hate what is evil. Sincere love allows for that. It allows for hating what is evil. And that will be our daily test. Evil. We're bombarded with it. We are confronted with it. We're confronted with evil every day. There's many examples. There's a huge example. I saw this on a program just the other night. Huge example of evil is porn. It's an evil. And this program, they were discussing the evil of pornography. And there was one doctor on there saying, almost, it's almost nostalgic. This doctor was saying, almost nostalgic to think back. Oh, as if it was a time of innocence where, you know, the magazines were behind the rack in the drugstore. The way things are today, that that's, well, that's, you know, that's almost like an innocent, nostalgic view of porn. And now, the average age where a child's eyes have seen this this vile wickedness is 11 years old. And, it's, and the point that we're making about the magazines is it's not like the magazines. It's this hardcore, deviant, perverse, unnatural presentation of what uh, sex is. And it taints minds and it taints hearts. And it presents this lie that this disgust is, is true that it's normal, and we need to hate it. We need to hate it. We have to hate that evil. The loving response to that is to hate it. Students, when your friend holds up the cell phone, because it's everywhere, when they share a link, when they tweet a tweet or send a video, Responding in love isn't just turning away. It's saying something. Don't ever send that garbage to me again. That's evil. Don't do that. Don't tweet me that. Don't send me that. Don't Snapchat it to me or whatever. Tumblr or all the others. It's garbage. Don't do it. It's evil. And you can hate what that evil is. And you can begin to talk to someone about why it's evil and, and, and win them over with love. We had another incident of evil just this week in New York. Was it? Another, another person, terrorist, in the name of the false god Allah, killed eight people. Killed eight people, injured a dozen. And then what occurs? Then come the cries then come the hollers for many things, but one of them is isolationism. We need to keep those people out of here. Now, 
that's a debate that I'm, I'm, I'm leaving to the powers above me. That's way above my pay grade. That people, they, they can argue that and they can figure that out. But there is a reality here in our country of people that are here. They are already here. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime when there are people here that believe so differently? Not too long ago, you couldn't get a Christian missionary into a Muslim country. because You're just going to be killed. You're just going to die. But look at this now. Walls have crumbled, and there's people all around us that need the gospel of Jesus Christ because they believe in a false god, Allah. I, I think Jesus and our God is the God of the uprooted. Now, these people, uh, this isn't their home country. It's not their native land. Many who have come over here, some because they've got no other choice, others because family, others because they've got nefarious things on their mind like this kid who killed so many people. God is above it all. He's the God of the uprooted. He's the God of the people that uh, are nomads. What does it say in Deuteronomy 10? It says he loves the foreigner residing among you. And I think Jesus relates. Might be hard to accept, but Jesus said he had nowhere to lay his head. He was despised and rejected. He identifies himself with the outsider. Jesus is the face of the refugee. Lord, Lord, when did we see you and invite you in? Whenever you didn't do that for one of the least of these, you didn't invite me in. The New Testament refers to us, Christians, as strangers, as foreigners, sojourners in the world, because we have a citizenship in a city, in a kingdom, not of this world. And we can relate to other foreigners. And we should, we should relate to them, hate the evil, hate the evil, hate the killing in the name of a false God, but share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read from Romans today. I read from Romans. And I want to remind you a little bit about the life of the writer of Romans. His name was Paul, but before that he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a terrorist. He was motivated by his religion. He advocated and he approved murder of those who didn't believe the way he believed. For those who believed differently, he had them killed or he watched them be killed and he went after them to persecute them and put them in jail. He was a persecutor of those who left his religion. Yet this is the guy that wrote the bulk of the New Testament. Now wrap your head around that for a minute. It was only after his life was altered by Jesus Christ that he went from murderer to lover, that he began to hate the evil. People were frightened of him. You know, this guy just didn't get converted and become the great apostle. People were afraid of him. They said, this is the guy that was killing people. And rightly so, because he was. And so their fear was not unfounded. But his life changed. It's only after Jesus, which is why we are here. We should be one. We should be one that we could be an influence of those who are 
evil, that we can hate the evil. We can hate the porn and the terrorism. They're huge evils, and we should. The only true solution for them is the genuine love of Jesus Christ. And they're huge evils, but there's others. There's lying, and there's cheating, and there's stealing, and there's all these things that come to us on a daily basis, and there are temptations at school, there are temptations at work, there are temptations in the neighborhood. What's the response? Hate it. Hate that. Cling to what's good. Respond in love. Love must be sincere, and it has to be sincere in the church from the inside out. No forgery, no counterfeits, no fakes. Sincere love is step one in being the answer to the prayer of Jesus Christ that we would be in complete unity. And when that love is truly sincere, and when it's lived out here in the church and in every part of our life, it's going to emanate outside the borders, and we should desire that it's outside the borders of the church to expand Jesus' kingdom. The church isn't the home of isolationists. We shouldn't be content to live with so many around us disconnected from God and his kingdom, disconnected from the love that Jesus shared by going to the cross and dying for us. Instead, we should be filled with hope and we should be filled with expectation and we should let that overflow with the sincere love of Jesus Christ outside to our community. We should be willing to attract the hopeless and the lost and the people that are, that are so uh, deep, deep into uh, evil, I'll say, because Christ can win them over. When the world sees how much Jesus loves us and when they see that love, when they see us united in that love, they see Jesus. Let's show them Jesus. Now, we might have to work on it. We might have to work on our sincerity. I know I do. I can't claim that I'm, I've made it to the point of Jesus. I've got to work on it. And I'll be tested, and we will all be tested. We're going to take time to break bread and share at the communion table this morning. And let's make it our focus. Let's make it our focus as we examine ourselves to really ask how sincere are we in our love here inside and outside these walls, these, the, the borders of our church?